1: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald-Times in Bloomington, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to talk about historic preservation and how that intersects with development. We have three guests today. Uh, two of them are here in the studio. Bloomington City Council member Chris Sturbaum, who is a longtime advocate of historic preservation, is here with us, as well as Bloomington commercial real estate broker and developer Jim Regester, who also is a former member of the Bloomington City Council. And joining us by telephone from Terre Haute is City Council member Todd Nation. If you want to join us on the program, you can call us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or from Terre Haute or any place else out there. You can call on a toll-free number, 877-285-9348. And you can also join the discussion by going to our website, org slash noon edition. So welcome, everybody. Chris, Jim, Todd. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Hey, thanks for being yeah. here today. Um, we have—I uh, mean, this is a, an interesting topic, and I think one that doesn't have a lot of black and white in it. But there are all sorts of di- um, oh discussions and even arguments that go on mm. about historic preservation and how that uh, works along with development. Chris, uh, you know, from your perspective, because as I said, you've been involved with historic preservation for quite a long time. What's the uh, what's the purpose of trying to be uh, really good about preserving the older buildings and the historic properties in a a community?
2: Well, maybe telling the story of Prospect Hill Neighborhood would help us get started. You know, when my family first moved into the neighborhood, it was the wrong side of the tracks, and the houses were falling apart, you know, chained dogs out in the yard. was not the place that a lot of people wanted to live, but it was a good place. My dad could afford a place to raise five kids. And what I've seen over 40 some years, I've essentially seen historic preservation save and restore my neighborhood. You know, there were plans to take a road right through the middle of it, Mm -hmm. which would have taken out 40 houses. Forty small affordable houses uh, were gone. And national uh, law allowed us to pass uh, local designation. But the national law also allowed us to involve – preservation of the Paris Dunning House, which also was a disaster area, you know, a Civil War-era house that was ready to be pushed over. But uh, once you put it on the National Register, um, we have to review uh, federal money being spent on road construction. So it was kind of a little chess move, move to block, and then local designation protecting the rest of my neighborhood. And what I've seen is a neighborhood that seemingly – most people would love to live in now. Mm-hmm. and It's a place literally 45 years ago that realtors would not show, banks would not loan money in and that transformation has been reflected really all over the city of Bloomington in, a, in, a, in, a, in more or less the same way where we saw a city that was bra- ragged at the edges. People had been moving to the suburbs. Old buildings were failing. Even the courthouse was threatened. Uh, what we 've seen is a a rehabitation of the downtown, a re new understanding of what that kind of construction was about and that what kind of form was about so that 's my uh, little intro for the story of mm-hmm. how effective things can be over time.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I want to turn to Todd and uh, Tara Hode and just ask about efforts at uh, historic preservation in your community. Have there been some successes? have there been some Failures, Um, what can you sort of tell us to start off the program?
3: Well, we have some places here in Terre Haute, some neighborhoods that have been well-preserved, mostly just through the, the market taking care of them. Uh, Collett Park, the area that I grew up in, is a, a good example of that. Of course, Ohio Boulevard, etc. cetera. Um, with us, though, we, Chris mentioned the federal enabling legislation that allows communities around Indiana, well, actually throughout the whole United States, to pass local laws that would protect historic resources. Here in Terre Haute, that's the point that we're at now is a discussion about whether or not we want to go ahead and, and implement that kind of legislation at the local level. We tried to do that back in, starting in uh, July. Uh, we advanced a, uh, an ordinance that is modeled after the relevant part of the Indiana Code. In fact, it's basically exactly what's on the books in Bloomington and 50 other communities around the state of Indiana is the only class two city that has not taken this step yet to protect its local historic resources. And uh, after talking about that for a couple of months, whittling it down in ways that made it, that were designed to make it more uh, appealing to the development community here and responding to some of their concerns, uh, I withdrew that ordinance because uh, it looked like I was the only person who was going to vote for it.
1: So that's where we're at here in Terre Haute. All right. Well, I Appreciate that. We'll get back to you here in a second. We have uh, Jim Regester with us. And, Jim, uh, it's really interesting. Todd, let me go back to Todd for a second. Todd, how long have you lived in Terre Haute?
4: Um, I've been
3: back in Terre Haute for, uh, this is my 19th year. I moved back to sell books in downtown Terre Haute. I've since become a property owner and a resident of the downtown neighborhood. Uh, But I grew up in Terre Haute. I was gone for about eight years, so uh, three-quarters of my life, I guess, I've spent here.
1: Yep. Well, I brought that up because I, I know both Chris and Jim, and these guys are Bloomington they were Bloomington kids. They grew up here. They've been here their whole lives. And they've, Just call them townies. It's what
0: they are. Just <laughs> call townies. <laughs> I said, tannies. they've
1: both been on uh, the city council and their families have been very involved in the community. Jim sits here now as a, a commercial uh, real estate broker and developer. And so I guess I want to turn to you. And as Todd said, the, the development community sort of fought him on what he wanted to do in Terre Haute. Can you talk about the relationship between development – and historic
5: preservation, and where some maybe uh, tension points are. Uh, sure, Bob. The uh, you know we we all understand the value of historic preservation. Um, you know the uh, maintaining the the record of our history. Uh, obviously, the properties for the most part are aesthetically pleasing and and uh, and and can add a lot of character to the culture of our community. Uh, the difficulties can come in uh, they're mostly economic as, as a development being an economic venture. Um, some of the properties you know were built uh, with designs that don't function uh, as a new building would, uh, whether it's uh, safety, you know certainly ADA, mm-hmm. um, which also can affect how the market responds to them. Um, there is um, there's a significant cost factor involved by definition uh, both in terms of actual dollars for bricks and mortar or restoration and a process that involves an extended time frame that in and of itself generates cost of carrying the property. Uh, architectural fees are much more significant or can be. Uh, and, and then there's an uncertainty factor that adds to the total risk of a project. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you talk about that uncertainty factor a little bit? Just be more specific. Well, when, you, uh, when you're opening up, you talk about that it's not really a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. There's, it's mostly a gray area in the middle. Um, there is no s- uh, single checklist for this is historical and this is not. Uh, on the one hand, a property just because it's older – a uh, hundred years old, even doesn't, in my opinion, make it historical. And I think many people would agree with that. Uh, it's a, it's about the materials that were used, or the character of the property, or the uses or users. You know, if Hoagy Carmichael lived there, we might like it a little bit better than, than John Doe, that kind of thing. So, uh, the process uh, it's pretty well defined in Bloomington. It's been revamped and. And rehearsed many times, but um, uh, the gray areas on interpretation uh, there can be properties that might have a single feature that's attractive uh maybe it has the limestone uh, columns on mm-hmm. it, but the rest of the house was made with very poor materials and it's falling down and and so forth so um, some would argue that. It's not enough. I know there are various grades of uh, classifications Mm -hmm. that Chris could speak to uh, significant or contributing and and so forth that are on the registers that we have here in town. Um, But uh, I think that, uh, you know, there there are clear-cut cases. Um, The Paris Dunning House comes to my mind or the Morgan – I believe it's the Morgan House on 10th in Indiana. Those – and and the the few homes in there, uh, the Showers Built House – on Washington. Uh, there's there's no question about that. I think it's when we get to what I would consider the other end of the spectrum where there might be a characteristic or two uh, that uh, either mimics uh, other uh, historical features uh, that we see in other houses, but in fact, the structure itself and even its size and significance and or even its location um, may not, uh, in our opinion, warrant. Uh, serious consideration for re- restoration, and restoration. Well, doesn't
0: that kind of lead to the spot zoning that we were experiencing in Bloomington in the 70s as far as, well, you know, these this group of houses is really nothing to write home to mother about. So let's take those down. We'll put up a big multi-unit apartment building um, and not really think in terms of how that contributes to the neighborhood as a whole, the fact that there might be single-family bungalows, you know, all around that structure and, and then how that I, – I, I don't I – go ahead. Yeah, uh, you're,
5: you're kind of talking about if you don't preserve a certain uh, character of housing in a given area, it will actually spill over and affect a larger area. An impact, and in, in terms of its how it fits into community and into the housing and, and desirability, I can I can agree with that.
2: Yeah, and if I could add, you know, Jim's comments about what makes a historic house, it used to be that you only thought if it was a big house that belonged to a big important person, that was history. But what we started to find, and the idea of what's what's important to save has evolved. And what we really discovered was we were saving the form of neighborhoods. And essentially it was the pre-oil age form of a walkable community that we ended up saving without understanding. We gradually understood why we were saving these houses that had porches and sidewalks and were close to one another. And you could walk downtown and we started to realize that we were saving the pre-oil age form that is now becoming the new urban form and being emulated because people walked. They didn't all drive cars in those days. And what I'm doing on the sidewalk committee at the city is repairing the suburban form that didn't think about mm-hmm. anybody walking anywhere. That was primitive. We were going to drive everywhere always, and maybe we'd get the jets and cars and start <laughs> flying. <laughs> I'm so, still waiting on that. Uh, they never, they never <laughs> but came But I hope around. they're solar. Right. You know, Ironically, we're now going to have to be repairing the suburban form, mm-hmm. and what's much more relevant is this pre-oil form.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And mm-hmm. go ahead.
5: And I think to your point, uh, Mary Catherine, that when we went back a couple decades ago and started talking about core neighborhoods mm-hmm. and actually doing that kind of an overlay, that speaks to what Chris is talking about, and, and uh, you know, I think that's a very supportable approach to, if nothing else, uh, causing people to pause. And think about it. Much like the demolition process does the same thing, mm. uh, the demolition permit will force a review. It, it gives a chance to step back instead of someone coming in and just, you know, the next thing you know, it's down and right. before anybody realizes right. what was happening. But I don't
0: really sense that the the main disagreement is so much there anymore. I almost I feel like eh, we've kind of figured all that stuff out. I think really though, at least locally, and, and Todd, I'm sorry I can't speak too much to Terre Haute. I've had a little experience over there, but. Um, is is more um, commercial properties. And, and um, you know, Jim, you've got a big project coming up right now. I'd love for you to talk about that and, and what that process was like for you, um, your property on Kirkwood and mm-hmm. is it Washington, uh, Washington Street. That, um, you know, those facades are familiar to any of us who have walked downtown, um, you know, for – varying numbers of years, and there's a certain sentimental value to those, I think, for us. But you're getting ready to redevelop that site. What have your challenges been, and, and what what pressures are you looking at?
1: Before I, Jim answer, let me give the phone numbers again. Oh, sure. We may be getting into some areas where people want to comment. So 855 If you want to uh, talk about what Todd said in Tara Haute, you can call on that number, uh, and you can go to our website, wfiu.org, slash noon edition.
5: Okay, Jim. Well, uh, it's interesting, you think about uh, why uh, renovate versus new construction uh, well, the properties there aren 't significant to begin with, but some similar challenges of you know it can cost more to renovate a property even though it 's got a standing structure than to build from scratch, so you get into that and and it, it crosses over to when you start from that site and we 're going to clear that and build um, <clears throat> the cost of making yourself uh, compatible, making the project compatible or, and complementary, especially when you're building right next to an icon like the Buskirk Chumley Theater. Uh, so there, that challenge, if you will, was to come up with a balance of architecture that, uh, for one thing, could please a majority of plan commissioners and, and, and the governmental authorities mm-hmm. and trust me, there's a wide range of opinions there um, uh, to balance that with the cost of doing an infill on Kirkwood, mm-hmm. constructing it and then having the market, the real estate market uh, such as our environment is these days uh, find it attractive enough, and and uh, there's enough demand that it makes sense to do it
0: to get to, to get money to the lending money.
5: Well, the getting lending money is, is is one thing, but ultimately, just to have a successful project. This this Kirk, uh, 120 Kirkwood, as we're calling it, on the, the project, it's going to have it's it's set up as a high quality owner occupied uh, residences for right downtown, mm-hmm. and uh, so to go after that mark uh, it's gotta be, there has to be enough people that either are faculty at IU or have been in Bloomington and they moved out and want to come back, um, to do that and to be able to do it with the right, with the architecture that everyone can agree on. And we love the architecture that we've come up with. It it, it was about the fourth or fifth, uh, rendition Mm -hmm. ultimately, but it was intended to have a historical, uh, aspects to it. It's even designed and, and uh, this was one of my little ideas. We designed it the, along Washington beca- uh, with two facades uh, because it's such a long block there anyway and we wanted to break it up. We didn't want to have um, uh, a long, massive, uh, symmetrical structure. So hmm. – Smallwood uh, comes to mind. Uh, well, I'll <laughs> let you say that. Oh, okay. I, I know you weren't going to say, wasn't that, gonna say but. that. But uh, <laughs> the – so the back part uh, along Washington looks like maybe a turn-of-the-century – Factory kind of building, mm-hmm. uh, and then we break that halfway up, and and tried to bring in something that looks maybe more like an Art Deco uh, '40s mm-hmm. style building, uh, and that ult- was built in front of it at some point. And we're just trying to re- not revi- not a revisionist approach, but you know, recreate mm-hmm. what might have happened there, and then with the, the architectural style that would blend with Buskirk and uh, Oddfellows and. And the rest of the buildings. And, and Jim's
2: being very nice about not bringing up how difficult sometimes this gets. It's a little like sausage making, but yeah, you know, the very thing that makes the place he's building valuable is that we've asked other people to do the same thing. That he's if he was building in a cornfield, nobody's going to care what that building looks like. But really, he's putting a new piece in the town that's going to you know matter. And I hope that somebody wants to save that building someday.
0: Right, and that's the th- – I mean, Jim, I don't know. Is this the biggest project you've ever taken on? I would think from an emotional standpoint, it's got to be.
5: Yes, it is. It's very high profile, and, and, and I love Bloomington, obviously. I've been here all of all of my life. Tomorrow will be 53 three years.
0: Happy birthday. Uh, so,
5: uh, yeah, no, I, I'm very conscious of our community, and I have a lot of pride in Bloomington, and, and certainly – I was actually very nervous about going into this to make sure that what came out would uh – you know, be appropriate and fitting and and hopefully a little bit of a legacy for, mm-hmm. for that part of town. Right. Plus, yeah. it has to work financially. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, day.
0: I can only imagine the multitudes of pressures that are coming in on you and the fact that really for people who live in Bloomington or have even visited Bloomington, it's kind of a sacred space.
5: Very much
1: so. I, I want to get Todd's reaction because he's uh, been very patient sitting uh, over there in Terre Hope. But Todd, when you hear these kind of discussions that go on in Bloomington, I mean, how do you uh, – how does that relate to your experiences in a hoat.
3: Well, at least it's a discussion. Uh, my experience in Terre Haute is uh, a lot more uh, analogous to what you mentioned earlier, to what was mentioned earlier about houses being here one day and gone the next. Uh, we don't have any mechanism in place, uh, demolition ordinance or, or a historic preservation ordinance that gives anybody um, any kind of a heads up that these decisions are being made. Uh, often when we are Um, presented with plans for a site. Uh, The site has already been cleared, and there's no meaningful conversation on the front end about the value of what's on it um, before demolition begins. And once demolition begins, there's really no way to
6: stop it. Mm
0: -hmm. I I remember uh, several many years ago I was working for what was then Indiana Gas, and they um, uh, bought Terre Haute Gas and gave the Cherry Street um, building to Indiana State University. It was a very interesting building. I did – just by the way, I did video document it if you're interested in having it. Um, uh, But, you know, the uh, um, glazed tile facade, very ornate, um, completely different than anything that anybody does anymore and – the next thing I knew, that building uh, was gone. It was a three-story building, and um, the university chose to um, demolish it and, and put in something that they wanted because of its proximity, and uh, didn't what um, didn't seem to be too interested in the historic aspect of it. And and so, um, I guess having lived through that in Terre Haute, I, I kind of feel your pain and um, yeah. wonder you know do you do you think it's just going to stay that way, or is there a movement afoot to try to um, perhaps become more sensitive to the you guys have an amazing um, inventory of historic buildings as That's an old fact. river town you have beautiful homes you your downtown you know amazing inventory is there a movement afoot
3: um I wish I could call it a movement i uh, i Feel like there are people who get it. I feel like there, we do have something to work with here locally. Of course, Historic Landmarks Foundation of Indiana runs a Western Regional Office out of Terre Haute, uh, so we do have some people who, and not just people who work in the field of preservation, but we have some people who are trying to cultivate and educate uh, this community about all the great assets that we do still have. But um, I am especially in light of this most recent exercise that we went through this past summer, I'm thinking that we have a long way to go in terms of uh, getting our community up to speed with what it takes to Protect what's left. Um, I, I remember that gas company building that came down shortly after I got back to town mm-hmm. uh, in the early '90s, mm-hmm. and I remember being confused at what was going on there and and what the mechanism was for uh, making the decision that that building w- wasn't valuable enough anymore to uh, try to protect it. Um, as with many buildings uh, in the northern part of. Our downtown, just simply having Indiana State University develop different plans for that area was enough to uh, to make that building come down. There's really no meaningful discussion uh, with the university, or there hasn't been prior to now, uh, about how far they're going to come into the neighborhood, uh, what is on the chopping block as far as uh, what might be able to be torn down so that they could uh, realize their new construction dreams. I should, I should say that we have a, a better situation uh, with um, President Dan Bradley the current ISU president, uh, than we have had in, in, uh, the distant past, certainly. But we've still got a, a ways to go. I'm not seeing the mechanism, uh, and I'm not hearing the discussions that would, uh, protect the, the things that we have left, not just in our downtown, but also in our residential areas, uh, spread throughout the city.
1: Okay. We're going to have to take a short break. We're uh, talking about historic preservation and how that intersects with development. We have three guests, Chris Sturbaum from the Bloomington City Council, Todd Nation from the Terre Haute City Council, and former Bloomington City Council member Jim Register, who's a commercial real estate broker and developer. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back.
7: You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Telephone Information at smithville.net and from Mother Bear's Pizza at motherbearspizza.com. You can take WFIU programs with you by downloading our podcasts. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, If you miss one, that's okay. They're archived on our website, wfiu.org, and the best features from each week can be heard Saturday mornings at 745.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from The Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today, our topic is historic preservation. We have three guests, uh, two in the studio, Chris Sturbaum, a member of the Bloomington City Council and a longtime advocate for uh, historic preservation in our community, as well as uh, Bloomington commercial real estate broker and developer, Jim Regester, uh, nearly a 53-year citizen of, <laughs> of Bloomington, as of tomorrow, 53-year 53, 53 citizen of Bloomington, and also joining us by phone from Terre Haute is City Council member Todd Nation. If you want to join us, please phone 855-0811 or 877, excuse me, 285-9348 or WFI. IU.org slash Noon Edition is our website. Um, you know, Todd was talking about dealing with Indiana State University and you know, we're here in Bloomington where Indiana University is. And Chris, could you talk uh, – address that relationship a little bit and how that makes some things difficult because IU has a lot of historic buildings. Sometimes you do wake up one morning and they're gone.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly, IU does have a, an appreciation of historic Context. I mean, they have one of the most beautiful campuses around, and when they build, they're trying to build in limestone. They're trying; they're doing everything that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a little friction in that you know they're a university that has a town attached, and we're a town that has a university <laughs> attached. And depends which side of, you're sitting on, but we really have been working things out. I mean, there's some old old war stories, mm-hmm. you know, and there was an earlier era when there really was a lot of conflict between developers and preservationists and the university. But we've really gotten a lot on the same page and we did a downtown plan where we brought developers and preservationists and citizens together and talked about it. And Don't you think, Jim? I mean we s- sort of have a similar vision even with the university about what should be happening and and we're not fighting so much anymore. We're really – Working together, and that's that's a kind of an amazing thing that's happened.
0: So you know, the, I, I live in Elm Heights, and the the university owns many houses in and around um, that area. And as a citizen of that area, I always kind of hold my breath when I know it's a, an IU owned home because I understand that um, you know what what could their motivation be for owning these single family homes? Well. You know it seems like they're all kind of ripe for replacement uh, right when well
2: they they used to have a plan that everything was going to come down to Dunn Street and everything was going to be rebuilt mm-hmm. and we've seen that plan it fall kind of come apart and and as they understand more the assets that they have um, they've still got a ways to go because some universities have taken the old buildings that they own, you know renovated them, and put professors and young professors and you know, really made it a good close-in place and more, more of their people are going to want those kinds of places to live. So I see it evolving. And you know, Do you
0: see them going back to single-family homes as opposed to office space?
2: It's possible. You know, I'm not in— Have you party. had a discussion
0: with, with Lynn Coyne well, about their this? New,
2: their new master plan is surprisingly progressive. It's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting and, and I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be going in the right direction. You know, sometimes things find their own way, even if the people who are running it don't quite understand what's going to happen. You know, naturally, the right things often come about uh, with enough people talking about it.
1: Jim, if you hold that thought, we have a phone call, so I want to go to Christina on the phone. Christina,
6: um, I was my my attention was caught by uh, one of the comments that I think it was Chris made earlier when he was talking about. The relationship between old neighborhoods and um, and new urban planning, and that was about the sidewalks. And um, I did. I guess this is a plea because this is kind of a a, you know a a pet beef of mine. That I think there are some very interesting new buildings going up. I think there's been some great work done on um, historical preservation in Bloomington. But the one thing that I I do find. difficult as a pedestrian walking around the town is that some of these huge new developments are um uh bordered by very very tiny sidewalks and it seems to be you know very much out of proportion and i think the whole look of the city would be um a lot more pleasant if the sidewalks um were more in proportion to the size the height and the, the the length of the buildings um because otherwise it's very intimidating um, to walk a, alongside one of these huge buildings. And you feel very, you know, overshadowed by them. So that's, that's my comment. And it applies to, you know, new development, but learning from old, uh, old neighborhood structures. Well, that's an
2: interesting point. And we're just looking at the designs for Patterson Point, which is out mm-hmm. on uh, the old Rogers building supply area. And one of the discussions has been how broad, how wide should the... Uh, sidewalk be in front of the building and 15 foot is about what we have downtown. 20 foot is really what the uh, architect is advocating and 25 foot would even be more comfortable because you have a place for the tables if you're sitting outside, a place for people to walk by, a place for the trees and the, par- and the benches nearer the parking area. So, you know, we're sometimes uh, – built into, when we're doing infill, there are limitations, so you can't always oh, gee, let's make that 25 feet wide, and Jim goes, my building! <laughs> <laughs> just took 15 feet out of my building.
5: We're, we're fortunate on the, the Kirkwood and Washington site. Uh, of course, the Kirkwood uh, sidewalk and right-of-way area is pretty well established, mm-hmm. and that's going to be maintained. Uh, and then uh, along Washington, there's actually 25 feet of uh, right-of-way there that we Decided not to ask for any of that to use in the project. It would be nice, but uh, so we're creating quite a walkway through there, trees, seating. It's actually going to be considered kind of a public open space. I think you can remember. It's Very nice. Yeah, we're going to actually be putting some limestone in, into the walls and and into the walking area and, and creating a living green wall, much like you'll see in the. Ivy Towers here on campus. <laughs> Very cool. So uh, it's really going to be a, a little bit of a show place there and, and a, a nice place.
0: What's the timeline uh, on this project?
5: Uh, February 23rd is. It'll be done? Is. <laughs> 2011. Yeah. Uh, we're going to start uh, breakground, i.e., demolition, on mm-hmm. February 23rd. So hopefully about a year. And wow, that's exciting. There.
0: That's very exciting. All right,
5: Christina, thanks a lot for the call. Uh 811
1: 877 285 9348 and slash noon edition. Paul is on the phone. Paul? Yeah, uh, you mentioned Chris Sturbaum. You mentioned the uh, IU Master Plan, and I was wondering about that. Could you elaborate how or why or what's so progressive about that? And I'll, I'll hang up to hear your answer.
2: Well, the transportation concept is um, really interesting. That brings people from uh, the Memorial Union to, I believe, to the stadium on with a kind of a bus uh, horizontal elevator, so that you're moving people at all times, so you can come in and get out of your car, get get on the transit. And you could even – there's kind of a station where you might be able to get to the train crossing where the train crosses that street uh, half somewhere two-thirds of the way to the stadium. So there could be a future opportunity for people to come by train, get on the buses, get get to the stadium, get to the Memorial Union and some of the other – I don't remember this really clearly but a lot of the development concepts were – Surprisingly good, surprisingly progressive. I can't remember all the details because I've just seen it a couple times.
1: Seems like a, a topic for a future program. Yeah, it does. Can, That'd be fun. Uh, maybe schedule something on I use uh, vision for the future.
3: Oh, well, and uh, if I could cut in here, sure. I, uh, uh Indiana State University has a recently adopted master plan, also, uh, which also has some some pretty interesting and new ideas. Uh, for those familiar with Terre Haute, the west side of 41 between U.S. 41 and, and the Wabash River uh, has been targeted by the university as a place to uh, expand into in the, in the near future. There's also a little bit of uh, preservation going on at ISU. The last administration put the mechanisms in place to protect and reuse uh, two significant old buildings, well, three really. Uh, Uh, the old federal building in downtown Terre Haute, which uh, will bring ISU across Cherry Street and closer to Main Street, Wabash Avenue. But then also they just finished a 30 plus million dollar renovation of the old lab school building, which turned it into the new College of Education headquarters It's a a beautiful restoration uh, model project. Um, In the future, the ISU plan uh, next phase uh, shows them reusing a. very significant um, in, industrial site uh, and huge industrial building that we know is the Icon Trucking Building. It's an old Pillsbury plant from years ago. that sits right on the Wabash River, and uh, this plan shows that tentatively being used as some kind of housing. For the first time also, the university is projecting and saying out loud that they Intend to penetrate into the downtown uh, and have some uh, housing options for ISU students uh, and hopefully faculty and staff also. There's a a uh, continued focus on the National Register Historic District immediately south of downtown Terre Haute to the Farrington's Grove neighborhood, which already has a lot of ISU professors and uh, students in it, but that's uh, a close-in neighborhood that's very walkable and very accessible to our downtown and uh, Indiana State University. And there's a huge inventory of, uh, of very significant historic structures in Farrington's Grove, um, ISU is their their current plan doesn't say anything about farrington's grove it's outside of their the envelope that they uh, have identified for their development, but I know that folks in Farrington's Grove are hoping to work more closely with the university to uh, to ensure that that area is protected and also kind of retool it to make it into a place that can be a bigger asset for both the university and the downtown.
1: Sounds like there is some activity over there. That's yeah. good. alright eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight right. 285 slash Noon Edition. We are going back to the phones again with uh, Joseph this time. Joseph?
4: Oh, hi. Hi. Uh, am I on? Yes. Oh, I have a question for both Mr. Sturbaum and Mr. Regis. Uh, one is I noticed the uh, Herald Times had a couple times articles in the home section on the cost of replacing windows with energy efficient ones. And I kind of noticed the government has a big rebate program of 30%. But in the Herald Times, I noticed it takes, they were quoting Chris Sturbaum, I think, as saying it's going to take 245 years to pay back energy efficiency of replacing your old funky windows. Uh, and I, it'd be kind of interesting if the Herald Times did a story on that. How much does it cost to take out these old windows, replace the dead weights on the double hunks, clean them up, caulk them, compare that to the installation of energy efficient? And I've been reading where it takes. You can save $300 a year on replacing your windows times 10 years is 3000 bucks. That probably is the cost there. So I wonder where that $245 is coming from, uh, 45 years to pay back that. And the other is for Mr. Regis. Uh, I wonder if you're worried about Bloomington being changed to Brickville because it seems like everything going up is brick, brick, brick. And I wondered if you think that affects the diversity of design in Bloomington.
1: Let's go to Chris first. Chris, were you quoted accurately in the Herald (laughs) Times?
4: That wasn't
2: me in that article, but I have said that. Um, The National Trust is considering making uh, historic windows uh, on the endangered list because people do think if I just pull them out and put in new windows, I'm green, I'm going to save money, I'm going to help the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But in, if you would have truly historic windows, they were built out of old materials. They're easily repairable. They're probably – sometimes they're 100 years old. They've been fixed two or three times. We can, you know, They can be fixed again. And often they're just painted shut and there's very little work that it takes to make them work again. And the, the fact is once you put a storm window on the old window – the amount of energy that you save versus a new window is fairly minuscule. These are holes in your wall made of glass. And if you have two panes of glass, one of them a nice new storm window, one an old pane of glass, and then you spend thousands on triple pane new glass, you're still just – it's going to be a cold temperature when you put your hand on that window it's always it going to be losing to energy. You
4: an old window where you take the entire window out. I've seen these on shows. It, yeah, Put it, in the new weights, reglaze it, redo this, right? weather strip it. How much is that for a typical window?
2: Well, it really depends. When you look at a whole house, the house usually has two or three of them that have been on the south side, for instance, where the sun's gotten to them and water's torn them up. So because of a couple of windows that will take quite a bit of work, somebody will often replace all 20 windows and spend $13,000 or $15,000 when they could have fixed those three windows, you know, for a few thousand dollars and painted the others and put storms on. So I, I sometimes say, OK, we, you know, for 5000 you can fix a few of these windows, get the other ones working right, put storms on. Or you can spend the $15,000 and, you know, somebody, maybe your grandson will— reap the final benefit of, of these savings that you, uh, you know, accomplished that way.
1: Okay, Jim, we have to go to you for uh, this Brickville. Brickville?
6: Yeah, huh? <laughs> well,
5: uh, you know, obviously we're in the heart of limestone country here. And so for those of us that have been in Bloomington a long time, we've enjoyed and had the pleasure of m- lots of massive limestone buildings. Uh, and that's a big part of what built this community. I think there's a pretty good balance, though, even on campus, uh, especially at the Crescent, you see brick structures. Uh, we're going to see those uh, in, in a lot of the historic homes. Uh, Paris Dunning, I believe, is, mm-hmm. is mostly brick. Um, so, in our for our project specifically, I can address that, um, it is a challenge to, again, come up with something that has authentic historic architecture or or a semblance of that and maximize the limestone on the building and make it economically viable. Uh, Like I said, we went through four or five renditions, and I think I'm very pleased with how we've come out uh, at, at the end. On the Kirkwood facade, it's more than just an accent of limestone. There are actual columns from uh, from the ground all the way to the top and and parapets and so forth. And then on the side there are, I'll call them accents. Again, looking, trying to do a turn-of-the-century factory building that would have been made out of brick and then the 40s building. But then we went a little bit further and we've got these uh, panels that we're putting in of limestone along Washington that are actually going to have, be carved, and, and have some uh, representation of the community in them for people to stop and look at it admire so as a tribute in in, in one way to the limestone industry here
1: okay. um, Chris has got a comment, but I want to go to Todd for just a second Todd do you in Terre Haute, do you have any uh, design do you have any de- design discussions with developers when there's a big project coming up uh, before the council
4: um, by the time the way
3: that things are set up here by the time uh, plans come before the council. Uh, they seem to be deliberately minimal plans. Uh and they usually are pretty malleable, as it turns out. I'm standing in the uh, front window of my bookshop uh, in downtown Terre Haute, and I'm looking at the new Hilton Garden Inn across the street. I see that the. Uh, I've been to Bloomington in recent years, uh, and I've seen your Hilton Garden Inn, and I think that comparing the two uh, is a pretty good example of why uh, of, of the impact that local. Um, design guidelines can have. Uh, as I look at our Hilton Garden Inn, which is built about the same time, I see uh, a manufactured stone at the bottom. is uh, Not limestone, but poured stone that's poured into uh, specific molds. I see stow right above that, and then I see brick above that. Uh, stow is a significant uh, material in, uh, in the Hilton Garden Inn that ended up in downtown Terre Haute, uh, not because of it, any discussion that was had, but just because that's uh, something that the developer was able to do because of our lack of guidelines, and uh, now that's uh, one of, probably the defining characteristic of the building. Across the street from uh, our Hilton Garden Inn, uh, we have a children's museum going up uh, that also prominently features Stowe as an exterior material. Um, it's a new-looking building, though. It doesn't purport to be anything that relates to uh, the historical buildings around it, which it's my understanding that that's a desirable thing uh, when you are building next to significant and and in the area of significant historic structures, uh, not replicating the past, but rather uh, coming up with something that's identifiable as a, a, hopefully a new landmark for
2: the future. Okay, Chris, back to you. I wanted to throw out the word sustainability you know, we were talking about why do you tear down an old an old house? What's the point of keeping and restoring and repairing? And when there is a lot of energy that's, in, that's stored in a house that's already there, energy in a building, energy in a house, and when that house is lost, all the energy that went into building that house is thrown away, you know, and then there's a whole lot of energy that goes into putting the new house in place. So it's kind of like the same thing I was talking about before where you save things and then you kind of understand later what made sense. You know, the the market wants to build things with fast. It wants to build things cheaply. It wants to build often. It wants to build things that give short-term returns. But when you want to put something that has a long-term value, sometimes um, the brick, oh, it's just a aesthetic look but really it makes the building last for a much longer time and it's, just, it's there for a, in a more mm-hmm. permanent way and that's another key of sustainability. When you build something, it should stick around and it should be here. And The buildings we're working with downtown were built 100-some years ago out of materials that are repairable, that are important. Mm-hmm. So that's part of, part of the deal and another little factor of why we save small neighborhoods sometimes, we're talking about affordability. And when you keep little houses in small neighborhoods, people can get into them and, and fix them and live in them. But if you clear them, which is you know the market kind of wanted to clear things and make apartments for students in a lot of these neighborhoods and that's, that's happened in Columbus, Ohio it's happened in a lot some other communities. it didn't happen here fortunately because we made that choice, but it, it created affordable, affordability in some of our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm.
0: We have a great email that came in. It says uh, Columbus, Indiana celebrates new architecture and new buildings while preserving many fine older buildings. I get the feeling that Bloomington has stopped looking to new anything. Since the wonderful I.M. Art Museum, IU only builds clones of WPA architecture. They even renovate to make newer buildings look like they were built in the 30s. I love those old buildings, but we should not pretend that nothing new and good in architecture has happened since our parents were born. Does the panel see an inherent dishonesty in denying contemporary architecture as all new and proposed buildings in downtown Bloomington have?
2: Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> um, new York has, has been way ahead of Bloomington in its historic uh, preservation of old buildings. And it has allowed some new buildings of really high quality to be built and and a good architect can build things that are both compatible and have a modern flavor. You know, sometimes though what people I think forget is that the project is really the town, the whole of the town and how it works together. You know, Columbus, Indiana is a little disjointed and it's a little schizophrenic and it has it's kind of a collection of interesting places but it's not a totality. And so when we're repairing our town, we are trying to put the pieces back and improve what's missing, and what we get is the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. And if the parts are, are fascinating one at a time, and, and there's, a, there's a bit of architecture that, you know, the heroic genius architect wants to build something, but if you show their drawings, they never have any context for the drawing. It's this heroically wonderful thing, but it isn't paying any attention to where it is. What's around it, and if you blend, you're part of something that's better and more important than your individual building.
5: I agree. I agree with a lot of that. I, I do think, though, we shouldn't be afraid of the mistakes that were made, maybe in the late '50s and the '60s, where you know cheap, uh, unappealing prop, uh, buildings were allowed to be developed because there really wasn't any oversight. Uh, and you can think of a few examples downtown. I'm not going to name any, but. Uh, I, I agree with the uh, emailer uh, that, um, you know, there can be, and Chris even said so, uh, that there can be some really fine looking, if it's designed right, uh, with a modern flavor and a, and, and a compatibility that, uh, uh, you know, maybe will be a little more economical. Uh, perhaps it could provide, even if it's providing housing, it could be a little more affordable as well
1: okay i we have two minutes to go, and I, I want to ask Chris this question because it 's something that I, when I go down third street I, I think about pretty much every time the two cleaners that are mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. you know one of them they were both sort of deemed historic, and I think there were efforts to save both buildings. one of them has been saved and renovated and it looks good, and the other one is boarded up and looks awful i mm-hmm. mean um, how long do you i mean what how long should that I mean is that building just there forever until somebody can afford to, to fix well, it up?
2: I've actually reviewed the plans for that building and they're wonderful. But the economy sort of took a left-hand turn, mm-hmm. and whether those plans get built or not remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. But that building is probably going to influence how the the new bus station, which goes right next to it, is affected. And that bus station mm-hmm. is going to affect the viability of that building. Mm-hmm. So something's going to happen in that building. That's good, mm-hmm. you know. It's unfortunate that it had to be boarded up for a while, but yeah. if it was pushed over, nothing—nothing uh,
1: nothing good would happen. Well, I can't say that, <laughs> right. mm-hmm.
2: but yeah. we would be looking at—we've looked at a lot of push-down buildings. Yeah that have stayed that way for a long time. All right, Jim last comment. We're, we're, Todd,
5: thank you for being here but Jim. Yeah, I've been in both buildings. The Mitchell building is the one next to the bus station, I think it, and I've been through it. It's it's got some really significant architecture to it. I I, I would I would preserve that one before I would have preserved the uh, the Leonard's, Leonard's uh, Lennon laundry. building. It to me it didn't, it didn't have anything too distinctive other than it was old and brick. All right. it's working.
2: That's, That's
1: it right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Todd, thank you for joining us today from Terre Haute. And also we'll probably be here from Columbus, Chris, after your comments <laughs> at some point. Thanks to Chris Sterbaum and Jim yeah. Register and Todd Nation for being here with us. And thank you to Mary Catherine for being here as well as Ariana Prothera, our producer and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.